Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ and made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Munro. I'm a surgical registrar in the northeast of England and a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In this episode today, we're going to be talking about reflecting on a crisis. We've talked loads and loads in all of these episodes about how to prevent patient safety issues occurring. But sometimes situations are out of anyone's control, like COVID. And so what do we do afterwards? To reflect on that reflection, I'm joined again by Graham Martin. Graham, welcome back to Doctor Informed. Can I get you to introduce yourself? Thanks, Clara. Good to be with you again. Um, yeah, my name is Graham Martin. Um, I'm Director of Research at the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at the University of Cambridge, this institute. And I've got an issue in all the things you've just talked about, all the things that make doctors and others work well, which go beyond those technical skills. You've got skin in the game and making things better as much as we all have. I'm sure you've had lots of time to think about this, Graham, especially since we've had, you know, one of the biggest health crises um, in probably all of our lives in the form of COVID. Um, have you seen anything in your work, particularly around COVID, that you think would be useful for clinicians to know about? I mean, I think there's going to be lots of learning and not all of it is going to be obvious straight away. And that applies at various levels. And of course, we've just this last week at the time of recording had the launch of the National COVID Inquiry, which I think is really, really important. Um, And undoubtedly, there'll be lots of important stuff coming out of that and not all of it will be easy to hear. Um, I think it's important to emphasise the uniqueness of the situation. This is, it's an overused word, but this is genuinely unprecedented. And we hope that something quite like it won't be happening again anytime soon. But I think there's also plenty of it that we can that we can learn from those extremes that will hopefully help us to do better in our more regular work. And we'll hear a bit about about some of that today. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the extremes and you talk about learning um, and you've mentioned the um, the COVID inquiry. Do you think, in your experience, that clinicians are good at at holding mirrors up to themselves? I think it's a good question. Um, I don't think they're atypically bad at it. I think everyone (laughs) finds it challenging. Um, It's not the easiest thing to do. I think, I mean, again, we've, we've talked at various points about how the medical profession itself is changing as other professions are. And I think that's probably a reasonable um, accusation you could hold up to earlier generations of doctors to some extent and earlier generations of other groups. But a lot is changing in that regard. I mean, we do know that that kind of failure to reflect, failure to accept that we're not perfect, failure to see the things that we could have done better has been implicated in big healthcare problems in the past. The one that comes immediately to mind is um, paediatric cardiac surgery at the Bristol Royal Infirmary Mm. where the data was there and had been there for some time to show people that things weren't quite right and if the people that mattered had looked at it and acted on it then a lot of well deaths in that case as well as other suffering could have been averted so there's certainly um, challenges around learning but the value of reflection is is undoubtedly really important we're going to improve and I think, you know, doctors, like everyone else, will, will struggle to hold the mirror to, up to themselves and look at themselves and see their uh, defects and imperfections um, uh, in, in a true light. 
but I don't know. I don't think that's exceptional for doctors, but it's really, really important in healthcare because the stakes are often so much higher than in other walks of life. Mm. I think it's interesting that you mentioned data and data points there, um, because I think one of the sort of the common themes that has uh, you know have, have come through some of these episodes when we've been recording are. I guess are about how we measure patient safety. We don't suffer for a shortage of data. There's loads of data out there and um, some of it is more useful than others. And actually the challenge a lot of the time is is processing that. And, you know, I saw some uh, interesting research recently that was looking at the dashboards that um, boards of healthcare organisations use. And, well, when we think of dashboards, at least in the kind of the original sense of the term we think of something that's in front of us on a car we've got like perhaps two things that are standing out at us the speed that we're going at and perhaps the revs perhaps the time of day something like that but it's a minimum amount of information it's the most important information to tell us what to do and the dashboards that boards um, often end up looking at are enormous documents with loads and loads of data over many many pages and they're really not dashboards anymore now of course it's challenging because probably if you looked at those things one by one you'd say all of them matter but the more you have there, the more difficult it becomes to see uh, the wood for the trees and to turn that into useful information and useful action. And again, we do see examples in the past of, of that where almost it's the information overload, the, 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 the surfeit of priorities and expectations and measures that um, stop us from, from acting proactively. So I think to come back to, to your question, answer it a little bit more directly. I think data is absolutely crucial in this. But insight, by which I mean sort of the wisdom and, and probably the time actually to be able to make sense of those data, prize them apart, see what's most important, discuss on them, reflect on them, are also important. So that segues really nicely into our first interview with um, Annalika Driesen. So Annalika is an anthropologist um, who collected uh, qualitative data on patient experiences um, on intensive care during the COVID crisis. Um, I think an important warning before we listen to this first interview is I found it as a clinician who worked during COVID really difficult to listen to um, and I think most clinicians when they listen to you may understand why um, and obviously this this data absolutely was not collected to to ostracize clinicians it was learned uh, it was um it was used fundamentally as a learning point um, so I think, yeah, I think this was a really unique experience that um, Annalika had to interview these patients. And I think things that we can learn as clinicians, although difficult to hear, are really important. So, Annalika, it's um, lovely to meet you and it's such a pleasure to have you um, on the podcast, Doctor Informed, today. Would you like to start by introducing yourself and a little bit about what you do to our listeners? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really thrilled to be here. Um, so, yeah, I'm uh, trained as a medical anthropologist. I'm working at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And um, I'm also a fellow at the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute, which is called the This Institute who are also the funders of this project that I've been doing. Um, and yeah, I'm, um, I'm as, uh, very, very interested in um, life at the margins. I've previously done research on dementia and palliative care and recently on intensive care and how sort of patient experiences and subjectivities sort of come to shape care interactions and vice versa. So that's um, just one of my passions. So I've been doing this project together with Lisa Hinton, who herself has done a lot of work um, in intensive care. And um, 
for this research, I've interviewed um, patients and uh, family members of patients who've been in intensive care with COVID, primarily during the first and second wave in the UK. The study is part of a larger set of studies, which is called the Health Talk Studies. Um, and Health Talk really is an online resource uh, based on qualitative research on particular conditions organized in a number of themes. So this is what I've been doing in the past two years to really analyze those interviews, conduct them, analyze them, and to bring out these main themes that come up through them to complement all this clinical knowledge with patient knowledge. So what's it like to live through a condition, uh, to receive treatment, to live with the condition, um, and to to really make that knowledge available for others to learn from. You know, it's it's almost kind of awkward for me to speak about the patient experience, and therefore I think it would be really wonderful if we could listen to parts of these interviews um, mm -hmm. that I've brought along. The first clip I brought today uh, is from, from Emma, who's 41, and she works as a ward clerk in an A&E department. She and her husband have two children, uh, and Emma spent 12 days in ICU in late December 2020 after contracting COVID. I, I'd, I'd have killed for a cuddle anyone I couldn't I just I would have killed for a cuddle but just someone to put their hand on you and just sort of go you're right darling you're like that nurse did I think it might even have been that night actually she just came in and I cried and she just held my hand oh it's amazing yeah so what I think this story really shows is this fear of proximity um that was very prevalent in the first wave against the background, of course, of not knowing what we were up against, what this virus was, how it transmitted, um, and the degree of contagiousness and that real sense of, yeah, peril, I suppose, that both patients were in and patients were dying and, and staff um, really, uh, didn't know whether they would take it home to their family members. And so I think against this background, we can completely understand um, that clinicians were afraid to get close to patients. Um, at the same time, for patients, that meant that there was very little, if any, sort of physical touch. Um, so, and if there was any, that would have been with gloves. Um, and this, this PPE, the personal protective equipment, um, was a protective measure, but at the same time, also very much a barrier for communication and physical contact. Mm. So those sort of the two sides of the, the coin. Um, and as a result of this, uh, as Emma illustrates in this in this clip, is just that there was this extreme sense of isolation and perhaps even more so, so this was the first wave, but perhaps even more so in the second wave um, when less patients were mechanically ventilated and more patients were on non-invasive ventilation and they were therefore aware of what was happening around them. They could see fellow patients in, in the bays um, and when they were dying, even though the curtains were drawn around them, um, would know what was going on and uh, try to make sense of that or their own. Um, many, many patients I've spoken to sort of describe trying to make sense of where they were at and what their chances were in relation to uh, all those other patients around them who had the same condition. Do you think that there's lessons from your work that we can take forward um, for these circumstances, should they happen again, 
in terms of um, patient patient knowledge? Um, yeah, perhaps I'll just move to the next clip and then we can talk about... Uh... Yeah, sure. Yeah. The last clip I brought is from Kate. Kate is a 42-year-old midwife and researcher. And both Kate and her husband contracted COVID in April 2020. But while she recovered quite quickly, he had to be admitted to intensive care. ITU were brilliant, I have to say. And if they couldn't speak to me, they would give me very clear parameters in terms of what to expect so I will call you at and the reason I'm calling for you for that is because I've got a drug round or I need to go and do this or whatever which was great and then they went above and beyond because I would then get phone calls from I mean that nurse I need to find that nurse I have to have that conversation with that nurse because he needs to understand the effect he had and the difference he made just by making that phone call and having that conversation as a human. So I'll find him at some point. The wards are an absolute different kettle of fish. I was just, and again, there was this conflict for me because I know what it's like being on a busy ward and having to deal with patients, families. Um, and it certainly would have changed if I was still clinical. I It certainly would have changed the way that I approach families. Um, so when I'm, I just wanted to speak to a, the nurses were fine, but I needed to speak to a doctor so that I could have that conversation. And I think it would have been better if they'd have said, had done the same thing. These, this is when I can speak to you, or this is the reason why, but they didn't. It was the, okay, we'll ring you then. And they didn't. And the biggest issue was that they didn't contact me when he deteriorated. I had, I sat in my house with my children thinking everything was fine and it wasn't. Um, so I lost all trust in them because I thought if he dies, they're not going to call me. And that was really hard. And I think what that did is that then stepped up the number of times I was calling. I thought, right, I'm going to ring regularly now because I need to know what's going on. Yeah. So you asked about what we might learn. And I think this is such an interesting um, um, piece of this interview, just because uh, it just also points out to the logic of why people were calling. So from a clinical side of things, I can completely emphasize that it was impossible to deal with all the phone calls, right? Mm. And um, it depended very much on how big the hospital was, what 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 kind of staff uh, was available to do the family liaison. And there were huge differences between hospitals. Um, so that wasn't because nobody was trying, but precisely because uh, there were such different conditions of possibility for making those phone calls so and but i think it this just um kate just really nicely explains you know that when she felt absolutely uninformed and did not know what was going on um that she then called more frequently so obviously you did much more listening to patients who experienced icu during covid and that's all available on health talk online but what I wondered is how the listening that you did contrasts to the sort of listening that a doctor does when talking to patients. Do you think that doctors are good listeners? Ooh, is this a trick question? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I um, have to say that I find it an immense privilege to have time to listen to mm. people. And I think that's one of the key ingredients, isn't it? So throughout the pandemic, I've sat in my living room and this is what I've been doing. I've been, <laughs> and clearly that's not what doctors have been doing <laughs> at the same time. So um, some of these interviews um, were three hours long. 
Some of them were two hours long. Most of them were longer than two hours, actually. Um, and I think that allowed me to really sink into a bit of a comfortable conversation with most people uh, or with the people I was sp speaking to. Yeah, so then patient talks through this, what they were called from ICU, onto the experience of the ward and after that, recovery. And actually, we've worked with an advisory panel for this um, research and uh, a set of amazing uh, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, other allied healthcare professionals, family members and patients who've advised us through the, throughout this research. And um, one of the doctors remarked when we started sort of sharing the first um, first findings, he said how little of it actually was intensive care. And that really mm. stuck with me because obviously if you're an intensive care doctor, that's the part you see and you might be involved in a bit of the follow-up. But that whole phase of leading up to it and um, leading out of the ICU, that's really something that stays quite obscure to them. Um, mm. And so that is my other um, position as a, as a listener, as you call it, a professional listener. I like that. Um, was really uh, that I got the luxury of hearing that whole story and also perhaps sort of almost a methodological benefit that I had the time to mm. uh, listen to the whole story whereas people would have been surrounded by uh, people who knew bits of the stories and therefore there's never this occasion to share the whole story. So I'm a clinician and I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying uh, and I, I hope that everyone that listens to this podcast will as well. But I'm interested, have you spoken to, um, to other clinicians about it and, and what's their response been? Absolutely. So we've worked with clinicians both in the advisory panel um, that we've had um, supporters and advisors during the course of the, st the study. Um, and what was always a good result for me was when they said, okay, we really recognize this. This is something that reflects what we've seen in our patients. Some, um, and I think what this work can do is first and foremost, an acknowledgement of the very different con difficult conditions under which care for patients with COVID were, was provided and how incredibly um, difficult it has been for patients, for family members and for staff. And I think that's, that's one of the key learnings for me that they're so related, these experiences. So, so much of this more injury and pain is shared across these three um, mm. roles. Um, mm. So actually, when we are in the advisory panel meetings, that always um, haunted me a bit, you know, where, yeah. Yeah. Um, where so much of it was felt almost not in the same way, of course. You know, it's very different to be a doctor working in ICU and being a patient in ICU. But very much that there was this empathy and understanding on, on both sides. Um, the other thing is, of course, to add things to the conversation that wasn't familiar to doctors, because otherwise, you know, we'd be, just be reproducing uh, what people already know. And um, yeah, I think to bring some of these issues to the, to the foreground that weren't necessarily uh, obvious to clinicians, I think is the other job of this research. Um, and so one example, for instance, was uh, um, that when hospitals asked family members to choose one person to be the dedicated contact person for updates that uh, they got by the phone, um, family members find it really difficult to choose mm. one person. Uh, often it couldn't be the person cl most close to the person in hospital because that was emotionally really draining and exhausting. Yeah, yeah. So people wanted that position, 
that role. But at the same time, it was very hard for them. So a mixture of recognition and familiarity and something novel and the yeah that had previously been unknown, I think, is the, how I see the task of this research. So, Graham, I've alluded to my initial reaction to these these interviews. Um, I'm really interested, as somebody who works in healthcare but isn't specifically a clinician, what, what was your reflection on listening to this? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, it, it didn't affect me in, in the same way. And I, I don't know why that is exactly. I think it comes down to, as you say, your direct visceral, exper- visceral experience of it. So, you know, I've heard stories like that before and I've I've seen the horror, but that's always been from a distance um i think your response to it as, as you said in your in your introduction to the interview is probably likely to be typical of a lot of clinicians responses because they were there and it brings back those memories frankly of the challenges of the, the personal anxiety and fear and also that sense that you couldn't actually provide the service to patients that you really really wanted to so, I mean, in some ways, what you're describing matches exactly onto what has often been called moral injury. It brought back a lot of memories. And I think I felt very defensive when I mm. listened to those interviews because I thought, I know this. I know that those patients wanted physical contact. You know, I know that they wanted me to be human. And I just remember thinking, this feels really inhumane. And I think it taps into exactly that sort of moral injury thing that you talk about. Um that clinicians know what they want to do and what patients need from them. But you feel like because of your, you know, needing to serve the greater good, that you're prevented from doing that. It's that frustration that's really like, oh, and I'd sort of forgotten about it. I haven't forgotten about it, but, you know, we don't talk about it anymore now, a couple of years down the line. Yeah, but I, mean, I think, I mean, and it, it, it was unique. <laughs> we keep saying that, and that's perhaps partly because we don't want to be in that same situation again, or at least not anytime soon. But I think, I suppose the sort of the more generalizable point from that is that, you know, we can all agree that good quality care is desirable. We should be doing mm. everything we can to give good quality care. And it was more extreme at the time, but I think it is transferable to other situations. Mm. Sometimes there are tensions between different aspects of quality. So, you know, one definition of quality is, and this is, you know, Aradazi's definition from 2008, 2009, and it's, qu- it's quite a good one as a starting point, at least, is, you know, that quality has three components. It's um, clinical effectiveness, it's patient safety and it's patient experience. And sometimes, sometimes those three things are very compatible and hopefully most of the time they're compatible, but sometimes they're in tension with each other. And particularly if you think of, you know, your concerns back then around safety, not just of the patient, not just of yourself, but of everyone else around you, you know, who, who, who wasn't that, who wasn't that um, far away from you, who you might be putting at risk if you did the seemingly humane thing. Sometimes you've got to make judgments about the, how to reconcile those things and sometimes there's going to be no perfect way of prioritizing all of them yeah I mean I think you're so right I think that you know those experiences during COVID they were they were increased in frequency and severity to use a very clinical turn of phrase (laughs) but actually they weren't completely new I mean I've had times where I've thought I just want to sit down and have a chat with this patient because I know that that's better than any medicine or surgical Mm. intervention I could do that they just need somebody to listen to them but actually the opportunity to cost to that is there's seven or eight other people waiting um 
and it's that time um and I think that that's something that Annalika picked up on really nicely you know she was really candid about the fact that um this was a piece of ethnographic research so she had loads of time to listen to patients and I think that that so much of the time you know it's not that we don't know that patients need time it's Mm. just that that's a precious commodity and that has an opportunity cost as well yeah, of course. And that is always um, attention in uh, an environment where you have finite resources, which is any environment, no matter how well um, resourced the, the healthcare system is. You've got that tension or at least um, a challenge of balancing between the needs of the individual and the needs of the population, whether that's the whole population or, or other people on your list or whatever else it happens to be. And again, I think, you know, you have to be not overly harsh on yourself as a clinician, as a doctor, in terms of how you make those judgments. I think this is probably a good point to go to our next interview with Dominique Elwood, who as a clinician herself has definitely been in these situations, but also now works on quality improvement and transformation. So her insight will be really great. And that'll be coming up after this from our sponsor. You're dedicated to taking care of others. But in these uncertain times, it's never been more important to take care of yourself. So, who's looking out for you? For our members, the answer is medical protection. The demands placed on doctors and medical professionals have never been greater. To help our members take positive steps to better mental well-being, we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a well-being service. This includes confidential one-to-one counselling, a well-being app, podcasts, webinars and more. We're also here to advance your skills and knowledge and reduce your professional risk. Through our risk prevention tools and techniques, we can help stop problems arising. You can access a wide range of online courses, seminars, podcasts, workshops and other CPD accredited programmes. Plus, at the heart of your membership is our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time for you to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org uk. Now, back to my interview with Dominique. I am a public health consultant by background, and at the moment I have a portfolio career across a couple of organisations. So one is as Chief Medical Officer of UCL Partners, which is an academic health science partnership uh, straddling industry, NHS and healthcare, um, covering a population of about 5 million in in northwest, north central London and mid and south Essex. Uh, But I also work in the NHS as well, where I'm a consultant in public health medicine and the Deputy Director of Strategy and Improvement at Imperial College Healthcare Trust. I think that in many places that I look at healthcare, we have become quite industrialised. And by that, Mm. I mean, we're processing patients. We're thinking a lot about efficiency. We hurry through things. um, And patients often look like they're on a conveyor belt. You you see them in a blur moving. And that's not why we came into 
medicine and it's definitely not why patients come to us they want help they want care they want connection um in their often in their most difficult kind of periods of their life and so there's this mismatch between what i guess the system is pushing us in to do because of austerity constraints and resource um etc and what we can do we have to do more with less versus the reasons that many of us went into healthcare versus our patient expectations and i guess that that kind of triangle is is feeling really fractured and i guess that disconnect between everyone's expectations and the reality of what's going on is where mm. it feels like it's the hardest work to do to go to work and feel like you're not doing what you wanted to do i think the stuff about guidelines and protocols and checklists is a really good point so i've been on the the, the end of kind of translating a lot of that stuff that came from patient safety worlds around surgical checklists and trying to standardize care and i do think that you know variation is often unhelpful you don't want clinicians just going off and doing things that they feel like doing when they don't realize there's either a, an evidence base out there or that other people are doing something different for good reasons so having standardization in 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 healthcare is important in many places but when you take that so far that everything is guideline and protocol driven to try and protect resource or time you can lose those core parts of what it is to care mm. and i think trying to reconnect to that purpose of care is really important so how do we see the patient in their full um, high definition so it's not just the biology it's the biography too so for example imagine opening up the clinical record and instead of seeing the blood pressure the smoking status you know the biometric data how would it look if we saw a patient's story about their life mm. their loves the things that they've done before and what they're hoping to achieve going forwards and that set the tone for the clinical encounter now you know that doesn't need to necessarily cost a lot of money to have that as a mm. intervention but it there's something about how we change the culture to bring care back into the core purpose of what we're doing, recognizing that people are really constrained. So um, I've done some work with uh, Victor Montori, who's an amazing clinician in the States who's working on the patient revolution. And he talks about, uh, it's an organization trying to foster care back into healthcare. Mm. He talks about the unhurried conversation could be the biggest innovation mm -hmm. in healthcare. And I think you don't necessarily need more time overall. It, it may, you know, taking time to make time we're hearing all this stuff about continuity of care being really important actually ultimately overall spending some extra time at one point in a cl clinical pathway will actually save time later down the line so i can say all these things recognizing that we've got these eight hour queues of ambulances at the door and people falling over and i recognize the context we're in around burnout and burden but the core purpose of what people came into healthcare to do was to care and that's why people come to us for to receive care health care is the commodity in which we're working in so i think there is something about how do we help reconnect that and think of different ways that we need to do that recognizing the constraints we have this conversation i had with analika when she was talking to me about you know during covid these patients on itu they felt like they lost their humanity and i think as a clinician i heard that and i was like yeah i know you know that's what i want to give more of but you know when you're in the middle of that conversation you think i've got seven other patients to see that can be really difficult um can you how do you um make that um balance between fixing the very real problem right in front of you which is the growing waiting lists and the patients 
so there there are always going to be urgent pressures in a constrained system that mm. will never have enough resource to do everything that it wants we we are a universal healthcare system and in many ways we provide amazing care to a huge number of people but we can't do everything mm. and we look at the alternatives over the pond and think well would we rather have a system like that and I think most of us agree that we want an NHS that is a publicly funded system but there will always be constraints and I think there are a few things that we need to do more at the level of organisation as individuals as well at the individual level having a look on your working week and thinking are all of the things that I'm doing adding value and is there a mm. way in which I need to stop doing some stuff like the workarounds that would enable me to be able to do more of the things that will add value to patients and the organization's care delivery so that those are things that I think you know, if you looked across your your working weeks how much of the stuff do you really need to be doing and what stuff could you stop and that ultimately even if everyone found an hour a month you know imagine the amount across 1.6 million people that would be amazing <laughs> meetings that you don't need to go to stuff that you need to stop doing workarounds that are just a waste of time at the level of organizations and I guess more of a system we need to start thinking much more long term than short term we will only get ourselves out of a lot of these issues if we start to do more around prevention and stopping people getting sick. So ultimately, I, we're never going to magic up more resource and the politicians are fighting it out over how much we're going to have. But what we do with the resource that we have is within our gift, mm. I think, at, both at an individual level, an organisational level and a system level, more than we think it is. And I would, I guess, be in favour of trying to have more of those conversations and more spotlight on that kind of stuff stopping doing things that waste people's time and doing things that we know will ultimately have hold better value than the things that we're currently mm. doing and that's choices a lot of that um and brave brave you know decisions and and culture change but that will all take headspace when you've got the ambulances queuing you're not thinking about the smoking cessation but ultimately we do need to think about the important not just the urgent in front of us yeah yeah, I think that's um that's a lesson for us all, I think. And yeah, I can't remember the last time I spoke to somebody about smoking cessation, but I will not forget it again. Um I've turned <laughs> you into the latest champion. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> yeah. Every little helps. Every little, Every little helps. helps. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, my final question um is a slight gear change, I suppose, is do you think given how bad we are as generally, I'm speaking very general terms, we're generally quite bad as clinicians are looking at ourselves and saying we've done a bad job here we could have done better we like to think that we always do a good job we're very bad at accepting failure I think that that is part of sort of medical culture do you think we are the right people to be involved in QI or and change all of the time just because of that sometimes inability to look at ourselves and say nope we could have done better this was a bad idea I think you've you've hit on a really interesting tension here and you know I've I've experienced it myself and been part of it you with you know the way in which training happens is we're pitted against our fellow students mm. you're competitively ranked for stuff so if you fail failure is seen as the thing that will ultimately change the destination of your career and many of us have been high achieving through our lives so how many people have failed at something but until you fail you don't learn and you won't have humility and realize what it's like to then have an opportunity to do something different so I think failure and learning is a really important part of what we do and the NHS isn't always geared to, to doing that you know we mm -hmm. we talk about issues and and um, problems but in a way in the past there's been a lot of blame attached to that and we're trying to move away from a blame culture now to be much more open 
around learning and particularly you know doctors in society are held up as having the answers to everything in terms of the healthcare stuff people don't come to the doctor necessarily to hear that I don't know answer mm. they come because they want the answer so you have to sit in this technically expert field and way of saying well we do know at least we know what we're going to try and do but I think medicine is shifting we're much more into a space of well, what do what should we do together what can we co-create here how do we help coach patients through some of the journeys and not have all the answers and and mm. say ultimately we can't cure everything and we're going to do our best job but that may not be good enough in some cases um and so trying to translate that humility then into how do we think about the stuff we need to learn about doing better in our jobs is really important and I think that's a real important part of a leader to think about what's it like to be on the receiving end of me and could I personally be doing things differently and better and are we doing the best job every day and it's not failure to admit that we're not in fact you know it's a sign of success to say we want to be the best performing system service um, offer the best you know experiences care and outcomes to our patients we will only do that if we keep looking at how to try and get better yeah. and the best high performing healthcare systems in the world have this lens of trying to learn now that isn't the culture in which we've often all trained in so how we support our you know our clinicians to do that is part of our leadership challenge and, and a lot of courses programs fellowships have started to try and help people do that and the culture is changing as I mentioned the question about our clinicians best place to lead change I think it's a it depends of course they direct most of the resources and they can make or break these projects if clinicians don't engage they can rubbish stuff and it won't happen and it will die in a box or a ditch or a folder or a report and so when clinicians are engaged it's, it's you know it can make the, the difference and often they are the right people to lead that and lead their colleagues but we're seeing now, you know, patient leaders coming through who also want to support and be part of improvement and are training alongside clinicians. And there are managers, manager colleagues who equally are there to do their best job. And so sometimes it's about the right person to be the leader of that. But recognising that engaging clinicians in that change is really important because people, people, but particularly clinicians, don't want to be done to, especially when they hold a lot of the um, technical expertise and so how do we engage clinicians and often that is through them being the leaders of that stuff uh, I guess the worst version of that though is the not invented here syndrome where clinicians then take to doing QI and leading projects but they don't look elsewhere as to what they could learn from yeah. somewhere else and so I think holding a, the, the power of holding a mirror up to ourselves I don't think can be underestimated but you can see how we've got to the point where people find that confronting and challenging because admitting that we're not good at stuff is really difficult mm. and and the question about the are we the best people to lead that often yes but not universally particularly if we're not doing that with humility curiosity learning and we we're, we want to deliver care in multidisciplinary ways so as long as it's something that is everyone's engaged in it's the right leader for that project sometimes that said we don't want to be pushing work onto patients where they're often unpaid to do that. And so thinking about the right leadership at the right time is is really important, including patients in that, but not creating extra burden on them to be the leaders of these projects. I loved interviewing Dominique I think that she gave some fantastic um you know not only reflections of of how that time balance that we were talking about before can be really difficult as a as a clinician but also 
I guess some of the ways that we can talk about that in terms of quality improvement. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on this as somebody who's worked in health research. Yeah, um, it was it was a really interesting interview, and I, I think there's so much to talk about from it. Um, one of the points that came up to me that you know that struck me particularly strongly, particularly at the beginning of the interview, was what Dominique was saying around this kind of industrialized focus on efficiency. And she clearly wasn't against that kind of move towards standardization. She was, you know, clearly seeing its its benefits as well. But it does bring its downside. So, you know, seeing patients in a blur, as she put it, and how to get from that to moving towards seeing patients in high definition. And I think if you look at um, improvement uh, methodologies and the research evidence base around them, there's, there's a few schools of thought on that. Um, so we do have those kind of... Um, improvement approaches that look industrial because actually if you, if you look at their roots they are from industry mm. from a manufacturing industry to some extent from service industry so you know a lot of the stuff comes from engineering things like pdsa cycles um, some of it comes from you know manufacturing production lines things like lean occasionally it comes from more um, service oriented um, industries but what they have in common is that you know they are around um, trying to improve the process particularly in terms of its efficiency. And, and that's good. And a lot of the time, you know, improving the efficiency can improve um, quality in terms of the other components of quality as well, including patient experience, as we were saying earlier on. Uh, something like lean thinking, for example. Uh, uh, Dominique didn't use the word specifically, but she may well have been thinking of that approach in terms of cutting out what's wasteful and focusing on what adds value. So that's great. So to that extent, you know, it's all very much pushing in the same direction. And there are ways to improve efficiency that also, you know, ensure that you're improving humanization because you're freeing up time mm. to do the things that matter in terms of that relational human experience. There's other schools of thought in um, uh, improvement techniques, though. Um, so some of them come from much uh, some from from very different origins, much more humanistic thinking. So there's there's things like experience based co-design, for example, which are much more about starting from the experiences of patients and of clinicians and trying to identify how to improve from that basis. And sometimes these things do lead to different outcomes. Um, I think the the key thing is trying to keep an eye on that human experience and ensure that that's not lost in the way mm. that you improve processes i think like i definitely see this a lot in secondary care but that you know individual bits of the system can function really well but actually those cogs don't really work hmm. together yeah. um and i mean i i, I was uh, seeing a patient in the emergency department the patient was really unwell you know i'm trying to talk to the patient, look at the obs, do all the things. And at the same time, and this is just probably about different vested interests, one of the uh, bed managers kind of walked into the room when I was with this patient holding another patient sticker and said, can we fast track this patient upstairs to, you know, the surgical assessment unit so that they can, so that we can keep the flow going. And they kept saying, we need to really think about flow. You know, immediately my my back was up because I was like, actually I can't concentrate on fixing one problem while you're mm. concentrating on fixing flow and yes mm. that works for the A&E department but then also you just put that patient in a different part of the hospital where they're you know another cog cogs problem and you know reflecting on that I was like that is so much about that industrialization that you talk about you know patients yeah. become flow staff become workforce <laughs> and actually we've completely lost the humans within that i wonder is you know are there ways of building in 
humanity um, into those industrial processes without creating that industrialization. Yeah, um, so I, I think you've, you've hit the nail <laughs> on perfect. the head there in terms of the challenge. <laughs> well, it's, it's, what, it's what all of these approaches are aspiring to do, but what they often fall short of doing, sometimes because they're not focusing in quite the right place, missing out what the, the indirect impact on the part of the system is, sometimes because they don't involve the right people. Going back to Dominique's point about, you know, the need to engage clinicians, even if they're not leading improvement efforts. So, you know, improvement isn't easy. Improvement's really hard. Uh, and good improvement tries it the best it can to account for all these efforts. I think what's really interesting about what you just said then, you know, the sort of flow workforce versus genuinely humanistic patient-centered care, is that it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the experience at the sharp end of that tension between populations and people. You know, you really want to give the best care to the person in front of you that you can, but you've got to remember that there's a hundred other people out there who also need your attention. And, and again, it is attention and we can't deny that. And there's got to be a, a, a trade-off there, or at least a way of trying to reconcile those challenges. I think, again, going back to Annalika's interview, the the problem or the sort of the extreme example when we don't get that right, again, is that sense of moral injury. Because mm. you, as a doctor, haven't gone into medicine because you want to make it as efficient as possible, although you might think that's a good thing. You've gone into medicine probably because you want to give the best possible care you mm. can to the person in front of you. The system's got to manage these different pressures, but if it doesn't get it right, then the ultimate uh, implication of that can be yeah, moral injury for um, staff, for uh, doctors, nurses, therapists, others. It can be poor experiences of care for patients. So the challenge for improvement approaches is, is, is how to, to balance those competing pressures on the system without losing sight of um, patient experience at the end of it. And again, you know, improvement methodologies have got a number of different answers to how you approach that. Um, as I say, things like lean, they may have industrial origins, but they're just as much about trying to focus on what matters to patients as they are about trying to make the system more efficient. Often that's not the way they're applied in practice, though, and it can mm. end up being all about efficiency. There's other things. There's um, other improvement methodologies as well, which you know are much much more modest actually in their ambitions. Um, and I, you know, the evidence base for them perhaps isn't completely clear that they transform healthcare or revolutionise quality from patients' points of views. But things like you know asking what matters to a patient can be a good way of eliciting what is important to them rather than necessarily what's important to the system. And the answer to that question might, of course, be surprising. No, I think I really like that you brought up the the what matters bit. I mean, I I was talking to Dominique for a very long time uh, and we had to cut the interview so that um, this podcast wasn't three hours long. Um, but the, one of the questions I did, I, I asked her um, and we didn't manage to include was, you know, in those time short situations and this kind of, you know, links back to Annalika's um, interviews. In those situations where you have a finite amount of time but you want to do the best you can for patients, what can you ask? And... Mm that what matters to you question is is definitely something that I, I think I'm going to try and use in my practice. I mean, we, we were always taught at medical school um, the ICE model, which is ideas, concerns and expectations. Mm. And I hated that because actually I was like, how do you say, like, what are your ideas? What are your concerns? <laughs> like, it feels like you'd never, you'd never have a yeah. conversation with a patient like that. But actually saying what matters to you in this situation you know, in a situation where maybe you can't just give a medicine or just do an operation that's going to fix mm. somebody, that is probably one of the more more helpful things that you can ask, given, 
you know, the finite resource of time. Yeah. And I think what we need to remember is that just as doctors can't cure anything for for, for society as a whole or for a patient, there is also the risk that um, intervention does more harm than good. Mm. So sometimes it may well be a matter of limiting our ambitions and, you know, avoiding doing unintentional harm. I think we're very, okay, I'm going to say we're very bad. I'm I'm quite bad. Um, <laughs> oh, and I'd I think be worse that... <laughs> if I was a doctor. <laughs> That's why yeah. I'm not. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things I've got better at, um, I hope I've got better at, is saying I don't know. Um, because mm. actually I think we're always taught that we have the answers and that yeah. we have the cure or we have a, a diagnosis. Uh, actually, I think you know, just being able to say, look, I, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. I can tell you that yeah. you don't have X, Y, and Z. Um, and therefore, yeah. you know, we don't need to do A, B, and C, but, but actually I, I don't, I don't know. And I think that honesty is, is important. I think that also, um, leads me on to a slightly different point, um, in, in the same vein, which is that we are, like, this was sort of encapsulated in my interview with Dominique, but I'm interested in your perspective, Graham, on this. Um, is as doctors, it, I think we find it probably because of all the perfectionism and fear mm. of failure that's built into us from from the <laughs> beginning. Um, and we're we're almost self selected as as those yeah. people. Um, we find it quite difficult to hold the mirror up. Are we then the right people to be involved in looking at ourselves or our response after anything has gone wrong? Well, I think that's a really good question. I thought Dominique gave a very um, sort of reflective and considered answer to the similar question you posed to her. I think there's undoubtedly something to be said for, you know, the point that you made and the point that she made about how difficult it is if you're a high achiever, you know, in inverted commas, but, you know, it's a meaningful word you know you you have to do very well in school you have to do get great a levels to to become um, a doctor or even to train as a doctor and actually the first time you fall short the first time someone tells you off even sometimes perhaps if you're a goody two-shoes who never had so much as a detention in school it's really really difficult so i mean i think i think there's truth in all that but you know as we've said in a previous episode we shouldn't be whether failure is the right word or not, I'm so sure, but we shouldn't be scared of failure. In some ways we should greet failure because the failure brings the learning. That's what uh, Dominique was saying as well. Mm. Just going back to your um, earlier point about um, how you found it difficult to say, I don't know. I think I think that's really important as well. And it's important at an individual level. As a doctor, it's important that individual doctors are able to acknowledge that. Um, it's important for the medical profession as a whole. And just to delve very briefly into some sort of medical sociology history here, go back to the 60s and 70s, sociologists were very critical indeed of the medical profession because they saw it essentially as, you know, well, looking after its own, but in particular Mm. by expanding the scope of medicine and going into areas of society that really, you know, traditionally we wouldn't have seen as being the purview of doctors at all, but increasingly... Mm. um, creating medical dominance, medicalizing problems that weren't really mm. medical at their heart. And again, that goes back to, you know, this, this, this challenge that Dominique was talking about, about ensuring that we, you know, acknowledge that we can't cure everything. So I think at, at, a, at a societal level, medicine or most parts of medicine have got much better at that, at sort of acknowledging the limitations of medicine, acknowledging that there can be too much medicine, 
and accepting that that not everything is a medical problem. And I think what you've talked about there at the individual level is sort of the reflection of that. These individual doctors, you know, it's important to acknowledge that um, you we don't have all the answers. And and I suppose you know the corollary that goes with that is that actually it's for you as a patient to say what what matters most to you because again I can't make everything right so what what matters to you what's what's the best outcome here what does good look like in terms mm. of what you want as an outcome of this healthcare encounter again I've gone off on a big tangent before coming no, back to I, answer I, your I, question but um, I, I'll I'll just answer it quickly I, I think as Dominique said I think you know learning from failure learning how to improve is is a collective challenge and uh, undoubtedly doctors have a role in that and as Dominique was saying if, if you leave doctors out of it then it's only going to get worse because doctors have got knowledge and they've got that sharp end view mm. of what's really going to make things better or what might cause unintended complications that are actually going to end up making things worse so doctors have got a place in that there's places for other forms of knowledge in that patients carers managers others they all have a view on this as well and again to go back to what we were talking about um, right at the beginning the the cove inquiry that's just opened that will be um, inviting a wide range of perspectives doctors undoubtedly have an important um, part to play in that Uh, but it doesn't begin at them and it doesn't end at them this is a collective endeavor doing improvement better means involving a very wide range of perspectives and forms of expertise so I think you've you've wrapped that up really nicely, Graham. Um, right. And I thank you again for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Clara. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Doctor Informed very soon, where we'll be coming full circle on this first season and I have our first two guests, Mary Dixon-Woods and Bill Kirkup, talking about putting everything we've learned into practice and how to keep going in the face of continuing problems. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. I'm Clara Monroe. Bye for now.